And so I learned, while choosing tracks for this album, that Franklin Delano Roosevelt was far from the only American to recognize the threat of fascism before and during World War II. I'm going to cover many of the great American folk songs that educated the masses about the dangers of Nazism, such as The Sinking of the Reuben James by Woody Guthrie, Hitler's Song by Huddy Leadbelly Leadbetter, and Der Fuhrer's Face by Spike Jones. Before you agree to guest on my upcoming release, FDR&B, Patriotic Songs of the Second World War, do you have any questions, Miss Bukowski? Yeah, what exactly do you want me to do on your album? I think your tin whistle would add a piquant note to several of the arrangements. You could contribute a few background or even lead vocals. I've heard you sing on a few episodes of DV Comedy's The Electables. You have a lovely voice. And seeing as you're a historian as well as a musician, feel free to write a few original songs if you like. And if you have any recording experience, I'm sure you'd be invaluable in the mixing booth. Okay, so I'd be playing, singing, writing, and producing. So what exactly are you going to be doing on your own album, Dr. Nair? I'll be listed on the cover as Historical Consultant. And for that, you'll take all the royalties? Why are you quibbling about money? Come on, it's like selling war bonds. It all goes to a good cause. Which is? Rehabilitating my public image. You don't need to do that, Dr. Nair. Well, that's awfully kind, but do you really believe that? Oh, of course. Most people have never even heard of you. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 32, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, The War Years. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents The Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. Uh, life is war and war was war and World War II was war and that's why we're back. Hello all. Thank you all for returning to DB Comedy Presents The Electables. And uh, we've been doing introductions, so let's see if we can kind of keep it tight. Let's first ask, uh, let's just change it up for the uh, DB Comedy players here. Uh, Joe. Paul. Sandy. Sylvia. Tommy. And I'm Patrick. Gina. <laughs> that was almost smooth. <laughs> our historians are regulars hi i'm chelsea i'm james and our guest historian hi i'm margie let's go back to the 1940 election because what are the republicans doing through all of this besides ah or some words to that effect <laughs> well the third term came up in the elect in the uh, campaign so there were all sorts of campaign buttons that talked about I wish I could remember all the phrases, but you know, three strikes and you're out. I don't know. They were <laughs> just basically trying to try to push the idea that this was untenable. Um, so that was certainly a campaign issue. And who was their candidate? Wendell Wilkie, oh, who yeah. was a moderate Republican who actually was on the same page as Roosevelt when it came to foreign policy. And that was that was a bit of a problem for him because he couldn't really distinguish himself from Roosevelt. Wendell Wilkie was the Bernie Sanders of his day. Hmm. Why do you say that? <laughs> You're going to make me defend that? <laughs> yeah, I got it here. I'm sure Bernie tried at the time, but. <laughs> yeah, but he was a. Uh... 
he just passed the president you know, age of eligibility but now wendell had absolutely no unlike bernie wendell had absolutely no political experience but he said things that got young people excited wasn't there kind of like a, a wendell wookie groundswell that is not easy to say among young it's, it's harder to imagine someone with the like wendell wilkie doesn't exactly exude gravitas we like wilkie yeah <laughs> well he 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 actually tried to present himself as wendy but they floated it for a while and as a first name or last name no his first name like oh, wendy? oh bernie wendy was, was he... it didn't it didn't grab the electorate was he working no. as a political cartoonist? Because I feel like he was just doing the work of a political cartoonist. Yeah. <laughs> writing it for him. Yeah. He was a nice. He was. He was just a. He was just an exec, a utility executive, who turned on the New Deal because it infringed too much on economic freedoms. And you know, talking like that, he didn't even win a single primary. They just you know, put him on the podium at the convention and nominated him. Well, he was a warm body. <laughs> I mean, you're you're running against uh, your FDR for his third time. You're not going to waste a good candidate on that. He got close, though. He got closer than anyone else had. Correct me if I'm wrong. He got well, within ten points. Bucyrus Utilities of Bucyrus, Ohio, America's most trusted source of private power, presents. The George Burns and Gracie Allen Show. Gracie, why are you spritzing motor oil everywhere? George, Wendell Wilkie invited himself over so we can debate foreign affairs. I want him to feel like home, so I'm making the house smell like Indiana. Wendell Wilkie? Why would a presidential candidate invite himself to our house in the middle of the day? He's a Republican politician. It's not like he has a job to go to. <laughs> Besides, he and I are both candidates, remember? Uh, of course, you're running on the surprise party ticket. Do you know what the polls are saying? How could I? I can't speak Polish. So, what are your views on foreign affairs, Gracie? They're very strong. Having an affair with a foreigner is just as bad as having one with an American. Have you ever stopped to wonder why Wilkie is coming here to debate foreign affairs and not the White House? Well, why would he go there? The papers say he and Mr. Roosevelt agree on everything. <laughs> oh, here he is now. Hello, Mr. Wilkie. Hello, Gracie. My, what a lovely home. Say, something smells heavenly. What's cooking? Great big plate of crow for you, Wilkie, but it won't be ready until November. Burns, you'll make a lovely first lady. Actually, I'm going to ask Eleanor to keep the job. Eleanor? Casey, why would Eleanor stay in the White House after Franklin is gone? Well, she doesn't stay in the White House when Franklin is there. So what's the difference? <laughs> anyway, Mr. Wilkie, let's start our debate on foreign affairs. Shall I state my views? Please do. I missed Mr. Roosevelt's last fireside chat, so you might as well fill me in. There's a wide gap between me and Roosevelt. Well, in experience, sure, but what else? Roosevelt wants to give weapons to England but stay neutral in the war. I want to provide armaments to Britain and remain unaligned in the conflict. That's redundant, Wilkie. Oh, I agree. That's very masculine. Gracie, redundant doesn't mean masculine. Really? Well, then what did all the vaudeville critics mean when they said you were the redundant part of our act? Now I'd like to hear some of your views, Gracie. As president, would you create a military draft? Of course not. How are we supposed to fight a war if all the soldiers have bad colds? An excellent point. So how would you repel Hitler in the European theater? Probably by producing a comedy. I don't think he has much of a sense of humor. Why, I think that's a brilliant strategy. 
What kind of a debate is this, Wilkie? All you're doing is buttering up my wife. Well, it's like you always said, George. I'm the toast of the town. <laughs> All right, Burns. If you're going to be a caveman about it, I guess it's time I told the truth. Oh, so you're abandoning your presidential campaign? In a manner of speaking. See, I've opposed Roosevelt since he tried to seize the power grid in the Tennessee Valley. Oh, I hope he was wearing rubber shoes. <laughs> I wanted to protect companies like Bucyrus Utilities of Bucyrus, Ohio, America's most trusted source of private power, by running against Roosevelt as a Republican. So the best way to protect Bucyrus is to lose? No, it most certainly isn't. That's why I was hoping to join forces with you, Gracie. Won't you please invite me to join your party? Oh, sure. Mrs. Wilkie can bring any dish she likes. He's already showing up with a turkey. And I'll bring a thick knuckle sandwich for you, Burns. What do you say, Gracie? You'll head the ticket and I'll be your candidate for vice president. Oh, I'm afraid not, Mr. Wilkie. I've already said that I won't tolerate vice in my administration. Give it up, Wilkie. No way Gracie would associate herself with a nondescript, no-talent colored. You're right. One is already more than enough. <laughs> well, we're the opponent. Good luck in November. Aw, oh, thanks, Mr. Wilkie. I'll save a dance for you at my inaugural ball after I win. Aren't you forgetting about Mr. Roosevelt? Oh, he's in a wheelchair. He can't dance. <laughs> I suppose you're right. I hope there are no hard feelings, Burns. Forgive and forget, as they say. I don't know if I can manage both. Forgiving you won't be easy, but forgetting you will. Likewise, I'm sure. Goodbye. So, Gracie, have you finally given up on this harebrained idea of becoming the first woman president? I have. Now I'm planning to be the first woman Supreme Court Justice. Over my dead body? Well, it would have to be. I can't wear black unless I'm a widow. Say goodnight, Gracie. Good night. We were talking about unpopular unpopularity, unpopular war, but as we get through 1940 and into 1941, I have to think there's an inevitability building. And I guess the question is, was it inevitable enough that in 1940 it wouldn't have mattered? Historians really hate that word, Joe. <laughs> inevitable well it's funny that you say that margie because i feel like in the past we have um introduced the word counterfactual into this podcast before mm -hmm. excellent excellent that trigger word yeah very triggering you know as writers of creative writers it's that what if fantasy imagination that really sparks us which which makes us go head to head with the history what if superman was a nazi what if fdr met the marx brothers whenever my students say something like like what if i i just really have to put on my stoic face and not <laughs> sort of roll my eyes or I'm, oh yes do you have to do that too james uh yeah but i don't think i'm as you know my response is usually like well, that would have been interesting, but that's not what happened. Um, yeah, James James does not have a stoic face, y'all, just so you know. May I rephrase? Okay. <laughs> um, was your question again? <laughs> the question was, was there a feeling that the United States was likely to have to join the war in 1940 during the election? think so I think that there's I think that there's a hope that they won't there's a feeling that if we throw enough money if the United States throws enough money at Britain they'll be able to hold them off and the U.S. won't have to get involved and I think that you know the the current situation in the Ukraine sort of gives you an idea about the human ability to deny reality because you read all of these interviews with ordinary people in the days leading up to February 24th, and they all said, no, 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 they're not, they're not going to invade us. Russia's not invading. Um, so I think that in 1940, it was sort of people thinking, we don't want to go to war. This is not going to happen. Um, the British can, they can, the, the Nazis can be beaten. I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a, a fraction of the population that felt that it was probably going to happen. But there's also, I would guess, wide, wide swaths of people who 
didn't think that the United States needed to be involved and hoped that we wouldn't be, the U.S. wouldn't be. Well, I think similarly, we, we also are seeing uh, a lot of people yeah, waiting on the, on the wings of Ukraine here, just thinking at some point we might have to get involved, but, you know, hopefully we can stay out militarily as long as possible. As long as possible. Yeah, that's probably a good point. You know, let's hold it off. James. Yeah, I think that there's there's some interesting, and again, I you look that this is coming just 20 years after the end of World War One, which for most you know middle aged people would have been within living memory, um, and the the huge efforts that were made, or at least you know, I, I think earnestly attempted to be made in the you know the the aftermath of World War One to try to prevent a similar thing from happening. For then a similar thing to be happening, it must have been like, well, come on, like, <laughs> we tried to stop this. And I think and trying to understand what would have happened without Pearl Harbor is a big is a big mystery box. Because on the one hand, you say, well, at some point, the United States would have said, okay, well, you know, Britain's getting ragged all around pretty bad here, maybe, uh, you know, or, or, you know, but you know, Pearl Harbor brought the United States into the war. I think the really interesting thing was after Pearl Harbor happened and the United States clearly had their own issues to deal with in the Pacific, Germany and Italy's decision to declare war on the United States the next day, they weren't under no obligation to do that. Um, I think if, if they hadn't have done that, things might have been a little bit different. But But nevertheless, I think it was clear that Roosevelt, if, if he wasn't, if he wasn't out, outright seeking the war, he was certainly seeking to use America's economic um, power to, you know, try to punish the Nazis as much as he was able to do. It, you know, we, we kind of understand World War One or World War Two, excuse me, um, to have ha, have had a salutary impact on the economy, and that kind of the the increase in demand due to war production really helped the United States finally climb all the way out of the depression, but. I don't really know that that was really understood at the time. Um, and I think the idea was uh, that, you know, that the war could be quite damaging if it disrupted demands for American products overseas, you know, in, just in terms of civilian markets or disrupted our ability to, to import things that we might have needed. So, yeah, I think that there certainly were to some level economic anxieties. And I think, again, the just the, the cultural memory of World War One explains so much of America's isolationism because, I think for most Americans, they said, okay, well, 100,000 Americans died, and for what? Because we got nothing from the war. We didn't even join the League of Nations. So that was just a big waste of 100,000 people's lives. Hooray. Even, we didn't even get an acre. Mm -hmm. so. and, and yet, on a very local level, and again, apocryphal family stories, of which I'm sure many of us and many listeners will attest, boy, we pitched in. We, we saved our foil, we planted our victory gardens, we, you know, ration, you know, we were, um, you know, my, my godmother ran a book, we ran a, a grocery store next to the Cleveland Playhouse and actresses would swap tickets for extra butter and, you know, thinking just all the, and all these little stories of this is how we came together. This is how the country somehow, you know, we all did our part to- you know, it's you know, what's very funny culturally is that like you look at all of those things, saving scrap metal, growing your own food, using a barter economy. We had just been doing that for 10 years, but now without the misery attached. <laughs> it was like a happier version of the depression. Well, no, Except, of course, for the misery of like nine or 10 of your siblings or members of your extended family being, you know, overseas and fighting fascists. That's but then you didn't have to feed them. So it's great. <laughs> And you could blame Hitler, Mussolini, Tojo, all those folks. But not Stalin. Not yet. Me, I see the lady or the man of the house. What do I look like to you? Well, it's difficult for me to answer that, but if I may introduce myself, sir or madam, I am Mr. Harper Edgefield II. And if I may make a further observation, this is a lovely dwelling. As good as it can get with my husband overseas. Indeed. And in the name of hardworking patriotic Americans everywhere, I salute him. What are you selling? I admire your directness and I shall reward it accordingly. 
I am a salesman for the Buse Iris Foodstuffs and Supply Company of Buse Iris, Ohio, as heard in commercials on the radio. I've heard the ads. Then I can summarize succinctly. The Buse Iris Memorial Ration Plan takes your ration stamps and, rather than using them for mundane products like butter, eggs, and milk, converts them to delicacies from around this great nation of ours. So the radio says... For example, I would like to present you with a sample of one of our delicacies. Smells sour. This is some of our finest cabbage grown by local gardeners in their Victory Gardens, brined for months with a vinegar concoction that preserves the crunchiness while adding a tart zing and necessary vitamins to all who eat them. That sounds like sauerkraut. Oh, perish the thought. The Bucyrus Foodstuffs and Supply Company of Bucyrus, Ohio, would never deem to sell a German food to our American consumers. This is Wisconsin Pickled Victory Cabbage. Have a taste. Hmm. That's not bad. Only the best Wisconsin pickled victory cabbage for Americans on the home front. Speaking of which, why aren't you fighting? I already did. Came back with a creaky knee. Listen. Ooh, sorry. Blame the war. Anyway, if you enjoyed that, let me open a jar of another delicious delicacy offered in the Buse Iris Rations plan. Pretty good soup. Indeed. Inspired by a dish served at large gatherings of families from the Empire State's mightiest metropolis, this is Albany City Wedding Soup. Hmm. I remember eating this at my friend Maria Regina Giuseppe's wedding. She said it was an Italian wedding soup. Oh, perhaps. But until the Allied forces defeat the Axis, it shall be known by the name given our genius cooks in Pusiris, Ohio, Albany City Wedding Soup. I sense a theme building. Finally, one final item of an exotic yet nourishing offering if you sign up today for the Bucyrus Rations Plan. Good fortune will smile upon you. Uh, it's a fortune cookie. <laughs> Nonsense. We will not sympathize with our enemies on the Pacific Front. These are California Freedom Wafers. Fortune cookies are Chinese, not Japanese. Nonetheless, I sense the enjoyment of all three items, sir or madam, and I will leave all of them here as a bonus for signing on to the Cyrus Memorial Ration Plan today for the price of the next three months of ration stamps. Three months? We will happily supply you with two months worth of American homemade, American home preserved, American delivered, and American consumed products the Cyrus Memorial Ration Plans has been known for since their founding just after Pearl Harbor. Three months? For two months? Wait a second. And we will then donate six of those stamps to a military family here at home to assist them in their struggle to keep their families alive during these trying times. We're all military families. This sounds like profiteering to me. (laughs) Would we be profiteering if we got the endorsement of none other than the first housekeeper of the White House, the ever-resourceful Henrietta Nesbitt? Her, she's a terrible cook. Oh, sir, madam, with all due respect, if you insult Henrietta Nesbitt, you insult America. Oh, well, calm down there, Will pal. Sign for America and Henrietta Nesbitt, and allow your family the delicious cornucopia of dishes made throughout this country at Bucyrus, Ohio. Or will you continue to squirrel? Squirrel. Uh, well, now that you don't need your meat ration for the week, you got a point. <laughs> Uh, at least sauerkraut goes with fried squirrel. Wisconsin pickled victory cabbage. So, Margie, is there something to Tommy's thesis that it was easier for Americans to sacrifice because they, you know, been miserable for the past 10 years in stark contrast who, who could notice, right? In, in stark contrast to, uh, Recent, shall we say, dearth of communitarian spirit <laughs> in response to the pandemic, or right. was it a charismatic having a charismatic leader like Roosevelt? No, I think there's a different ethos then, uh, and I don't think this, this sort of hyper individualism that's taken hold in the last 20, 30 years was quite as evident in the 1940s. Um, I would say that people were frustrated in a way because they had money in their pockets for the first time in a decade and they couldn't buy pantyhose. You know, they couldn't, they couldn't buy the things that, that, killed me. that they wanted and they couldn't <laughs> buy a car. Um, so there was a lot of pent up like, demand. Like most things, I blame this on Reagan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, it was gravely making movies.
Nope. I want to spend more time talking about the work time economy. We could talk about Roosevelt in a second, but I just want to kind of sketch <laughs> things because I'm not sure. I think this is something that the public, by and large, isn't totally aware of because the the wartime U.S. economy is really kind of a remarkable thing in terms of you have an economy which is, you know, yes, the the private element exists. We didn't abolish private business, but. 78% of government of the economy was government spending. So that means that private businesses are mainly providing what the government wants. Um, the government is basically telling private businesses, you will build this in exactly this way. And the government is also heavily uh, determining what prices they're willing to pay for what they're going to buy. They're telling businesses basically what they're going to pay their workers. And also, yes, you will let your workers unionize. And Unemployment is virtually eliminated. Now, yes, that was because a lot of people got pulled into the army and the armed forces, although that's also employment of kind of a different kind. Um, a whole bunch of new people got pulled in the workforce, which I'm sure we'll talk about that. You had, and despite rationing, right, which was obviously because we were using a lot of the resources to create military goods, you had very little in terms of actual poverty going on during the war because basically anybody who wants a job can get a job. And because there were price controls and wage controls, for the most part, jobs paid living wages. And so I always just, you know, I think when people talk to Dale about like, well, the government can't do stuff. The government can't control the economy. One of the best economies we've ever had at getting stuff done and keeping people employed and making a whole ton of crap was the government basically run economy of World War II? You Hitler. Now, so, was that living wage? Wasn't there some different? Wasn't there? Weren't there some discre ethnic discrepancies between between that living wage? And yeah, I'd I'm sure that there was. That just about just because eh, not everybody who wanted a job was able to get that job. Certainly, like it, it wasn't like it erased all racism. You know, I, I'm certainly not going to say that and didn't erase all sexism. Those issues continued. But there was, you know, I think if you looked at unemployment during World War II, you'd be looking at the very, very low single digits, as opposed to even as late as 1936, 1937, unemployment was above 10%. And I will point out, I just to kind of bolster your point, James, and, and that the creation of commissions that were focused on, I don't want to say the word propaganda, but focused on um, sending very unified messages that were developed during the depression, right? Um, we're thinking like WPA, we're thinking a lot of these other pro um, New Deal commissions. That gets used during the, uh, um, economic growth uh, of World War II, right? Like think think that very iconic war manpower commission poster of all of the guys around the tank and they all have very ethnic last names, right? And that commission also saying like, employers cannot afford to discriminate against black folks or other minority folks or women. You literally cannot afford to do that. Um, and I think making the economic argument, you're right, Sylvia, doesn't eliminate racism. Like there's still a lot of private employers who are like, I don't care about you war manpower commission. But I think it, by couching it in an economic argument, it makes it harder to deny. I, I, just to throw in, I was about ready to say, hey, let's start to talk about what FDR was doing as the war was was actually happening and now we have part of the economic sort of how how it worked on an economic uh from the economics perspective um, Margie, it looked like you had a response to um no i mean i was just gonna say i think probably maybe in response to joe that people who were in the middle of it i think saw the um economic management as much more chaotic then perhaps we see it now. So at the time, I, I, lots of people were very critical of the Roosevelt administration for not having a clear plan and not having more centralized control over the economy and multiple 
agencies, small business, you know, large contractors, um, and the Office of Price Administration, which uh, of course set the price and wage controls, uh, was very controversial and people were frustrated by it frequently. So I think at the time it felt as if things weren't actually running very smoothly um, and Roosevelt's style, which was to sort of allow people to allow agencies and individuals to compete with one another, um, a lot of people saw as not very efficient and as, as counterproductive in terms of creating this, this wartime economy. Mr. Ford, Mr. Lindbergh, and Mr. Disney, I'm sure you're quite curious as to why, as America embarks upon a war, I've invited the three of you to the White House. No mystery to me, Roosevelt. You just declared war on Japan and Germany. You need tanks and bombs, and you're about to offer me a nice, big, fat government contract to build them. Mr. Ford, may I remind you that Congress has granted me sufficient power to seize control of every U.S. factory. You work for me now. And no, you may not take a day off. Hmm. <laughs> think I'll donate a few million to Wilkie in 44. Oh, don't waste your money. Americans can have any president, as long as it's me. So not only are you stealing my company, you're stealing my best lines. What's with the flyboy and the cartoonist? Isn't it obvious? To shore up his popularity, he needs the support of America's greatest hero. You betcha! Mickey Mouse! <laughs> Mr. Lindbergh, your triumphant flight to Paris was 15 years ago. My third straight electoral victory was less than two years ago. I, I have no doubt of the public's favor. Oh, yeah? Anyone ever name a dance after you? <laughs> Did they call it the Rosie Roll? Ooh, that would be a cute name for an animated cripple. I think I'll make a feature-length cartoon about a herd of talking animals helping a one-legged waif defeat a ruthless, evil, suspiciously Semitic-looking banker. And I'm sure such a film would be a financial triumph on the level of Fantasia or Pinocchio. Oh, phooey. That sure wasn't swell. So what are we doing here, Mr. Rosenberg? I'm sorry, Mr. Roosevelt? I'm answering one of my fiercest critics, who accuses me of hypocrisy for imprisoning thousands of U.S. citizens merely for their race, while allowing prominent men such as yourself to provide aid and comfort to America's enemies. What kind of Bolshevik radical would say such a thing? Eleanor, therefore, to spare this administration and this country further embarrassment, I shall offer you three famous traitors an opportunity to prove your patriotism. I don't have to prove my patriotism. I'm an American icon, thanks to my combination of courage, good looks, and modesty. Well, the Germans seem fond of you too, Lindbergh. The Nazi regime awarded you a medal for your service to aviation. Hey, so why does Hitler have to be our enemy? He likes us. He got his ideas about separation of the races from Jim Crow laws in the South. And he doesn't want to wake up one day and find a generation of genetically inferior children. Perhaps you oughtn't to be the one to speak of finding children. Care to defend the anti-Semitism of your speech in Des Moines? Hey, I'm just trying to make America first again. Besides, those statements were taken out of context by the Jewish cartel that runs the newspapers and movie studios. Well, they'll be loath to criticize you after you've flown enough bombing missions. Please, I can't harm poor innocent Germans. It's brutal. It's unfair. It's inhumane. I'm sending you to fight the Japanese. Nito, where do I sign up? Now, Mr. Disney, are you aware that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves is Adolf Hitler's favorite film? Gee, what do you expect? It's about ugly short guys. Well, you have violated the government-guaranteed right of your workers to form a union. Oh, heck, animators aren't workers. They're family. Families don't need a union. And finally, you invited Nazi filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl to Disney Studios in Los Angeles. Uh, look, you may not like her politics, but she's a great... Embarrassment, Mr. Disney. For the foreseeable future, your studio is a propaganda outlet for the U.S. government. Uh, perhaps you can produce a cartoon about the importance of paying one's income tax called Don't Duck the IRS. <laughs> Stick with politics, Roosevelt. I have every intention of doing so. And as for you, Mr. Ford, Adolf Hitler keeps a picture of you on his desk. So do lots of people. I'm a handsome guy. 
For decades, your dear poet independent newspaper has blamed all of America's ills on a Jewish conspiracy. We were just asking questions. And last Christmas, instead of a ham or a fruitcake, you gave all your workers a copy of a slanderous work called The International Jew. Jesus was an international Jew, when you think about it. Indeed he was. Since you're already contributing to the war effort, Ford, I'll require your services afterwards. Once we've destroyed the industrial capacity of both Germany and Japan, you will help them rebuild their economies by manufacturing a series of automobiles so expensive and so dangerous that consumers will buy cheaper, safer German and Japanese models. Do we have a deal? I'll have to check with my boy Edsel first. Now there's a Ford in my future. Sounds like you're all on your way to the right forms of discrimination. Ole. Maybe maybe it's my turn to throw a provocative question because we were talking about sanctions and things that were happening certainly in Europe and we did re we we originally did this set of shows live in 2017 and everybody took a president to do some research and I forget who got FDR amongst our group. But one of the bullet points that was researched and presented was something to the effect that in hopes of not of dissuading Japan from attacking a series of economic sanctions and boycotts were applied. They failed. And one of the byproducts of that failure was not just the declaration of war, but animus that was one of the catalysts for the internment camps. I think you can even go farther and say that Japan's whole reason of attacking the United States was largely a strategic response to the sanctions that the United States had placed upon it, in particular, the prohibition on the export of oil to Japan forced them to seek other sources of oil in the Dutch East Indies which then forced them to contemplate, okay, how do we protect our supply lines with an American controlled Philippines right in the middle of that, which then eventually, you know, follow the rabbit hole down leads to them saying, okay, well, let's bomb the American fleet in Pearl Harbor and just try to get that out of the way. Um, Japanese politics in this whole thing is a whole big mess, which could be its own podcast, I'm sure. Um, but the, don't give us any more ideas. Right. <laughs> you know, it, I, I think the trying to unravel Pearl Harbor from the Japanese perspective is really difficult because there's so many different things going on and so many different kind of ambitions that are competing there, both strategic and personal. Um, but I think that there's no doubt that it's, it's just such for Americans, you know, all of a sudden they get bombed. And for most Americans, especially, you know, who, and you really think about, you know, we're like, wait, what? Why? You know, I, I, think, I think most Americans were just utterly shocked at Pearl Harbor and felt an incredible set. Like, I think it was, it was really the, the closest analog that we've got now is September 11th, right? Yeah. Where for most Americans, despite America's involvement in the Middle East for years and years and years, and certainly previous run-ins with radical Islam, when most Americans wake up on September 11th, 2001, they're not thinking, oh my gosh, there could be an attack on the United States. I think December 7th, 1941, exactly the same. People were not expecting this and people were shocked. And I think we're largely, you know, honestly, you know, the, the internment camps were obviously wrong uh, and were an overreaction by the US government. But I think that in terms of people's popular minds, the government, US government could have probably gone even further uh, and still had the support of the American people. I think people were that mad about it. So, Margie, um, the impression I, the impression I'm getting from you know diplomacy right before Pearl Harbor was that Roosevelt was sending his most trusted surrogates, his most trusted aides. Harry Hopkins, poor bastard, almost died traveling around the world while recovering from cancer, going to London and uh, Moscow and getting all kinds of vodka poured down his throat. All five famously healthy cities, London and Moscow. Without a doubt, with the, but uh, it seems like for all the debt, all the intelligence we were getting on Japan was like, oh, okay, they're invading China. They're, they're busy with that, and all the intelligence we were just getting was from the ambassador in place. I did not see 
a, I mean, I did not notice, maybe there was a real effort to understand what was going on with the Japanese empire. Am I correct in that? Is that a good, imp um, good impression I'm making? No, I would agree with that. I don't know if there was a, a real press to try to figure it out. Um, I mean, they're doing the best they can and intercepting codes and you know trying to figure out what what the plans are they know that i mean they know moving into 1940 that in 41 that the tension is rising i mean that's there's a flurry the flurry of negotiations that are going on in 1941 must have you know they telegraphed to roosevelt that there was a big problem <laughs> in, in asia and the pacific um so, you know, and then they realize in 1941 that there will be, probably will be an attack. They're not sure where, probably the Philippines. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know that they spent as much time trying to figure out what was happening in Asia as they did in Europe, but um, they were certainly aware that it was a threat. That racism on the part of, <laughs> provocative questions, that racism on the part of American diplomats and the American diplomatic establishments? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, <laughs> talking about, I mean, the State Department is basically full of people from the Ivies, and they all come from kind of blue blood backgrounds. Um, so, yeah, I think. And then, of course, there's a huge, there's a kind of cohort of, of supporters uh, of China. And so they're concerned about Japan's aggression um, and pressing Roosevelt to, to do more to help China. And Time Magazine, I think, ran covers of, of Chiang Kai-shek and Madame mm -hmm. Chiang Kai-shek in the mm -hmm. 30s, you know, trying to support the Chinese. Um, so they're, they're attempting to build up, because um, Henry Luce was a big supporter of the Chinese, his hmm. son of missionaries, and had a strong kind of connection to the- Henry Luce? Yeah. <laughs> I got Henry Morgenthau for a second. I'm like, oh, no, my No, I, yeah, the publisher of I think the incarceration of the Japanese Americans too is building on, it's building on a, a long tradition of racism in California, specifically in the Pacific Northwest. And so Pearl Harbor gives people a window, an opportunity to then act on these long simmering tensions, um, ethnic tensions in California. And they, they sort of seize the moment and decide, ah, now we can finally rid ourselves of our Japanese-American neighbors. Um, yeah, the Japanese, it was interesting, it was the only group I've ever seen that was criticized, only immigrant group I've ever seen criticized for assimilating too quickly. They were criticized for that like in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, like they must be up to something because they're opening businesses and learning English and- Well, they're so, yeah. criticized for that, for competing economic competing successfully economically, but they are also criticized for not assimilating culturally. So- Get they, win. Yeah, because I mean, the argument was that they had not assimilated in, in 1940 and 41, and therefore they were a threat. They were clearly loyal, still loyal to Japan. Um, and, and that sort of fed into, I think fed into the uh, imprisonment. So are we gonna lay this on the, uh, the feet of Earl Warren, I believe he was governor of California at the Earl time. Warren. DeWitt and, was the big, General DeWitt was sort of the driving force behind a lot of this. But who's General DeWitt? He's a, he was in charge of sort of West Coast. Military. Okay, so he was a military commander who applied yeah. political pressure. Yeah. Eleanor thought it was a terrible idea. She did. This is the one area though, where she spoke to FDR privately, but, and he, basically told her he'd made his decision. He didn't want to talk about it. She never said anything publicly. She never criticized it. She visited the camps. Um, and that was, I think, her her way of trying to demonstrate some solidarity. But, you know, she didn't, unfortunately, she did not use her position to advocate very strongly for the closure of those camps. It seems like, I don't know, I'm asking everyone to pool their Hollywood and their U.S. history. It seemed to vary by studio. Warner Brothers was making a lot of anti-Nazi mm -hmm. propaganda. Boy, were they. 
uh, even before the war, uh, MGM didn't want to risk its sizable German audience. And Walt Disney was kind of like strong-armed into making anti-war movies and pro-tax movies. What about Fox? Movie Tone News was 20th Century Fox, so the, the primary producer of uh, everybody's updates in the movies were our friends at Fox. And 20th oh, Century Fox had that great propaganda weapon, Eddie Grable. Ooh. That was all fake news. <laughs> <laughs> Betty Grable was fake news? What? Yeah. You heard it here first. <laughs> Those weren't her games? <laughs> so you don't, but, so Margie, you don't think the pinups helped us win World War II? God. If not Gable, come on. Rita Hayworth. It definitely made the war up more fun to look back on. You know, you don't get that in World War One. looking at machines of war. There's uh, Columbia Pictures with the 1940 classic, You Nasty Spy, where uh, Larry, Moe, and Curly fight the Nazis. Uh, and uh, Moe actually plays Hitler. He, he's a natural. Yeah. This, this was nine months before the Great Dictator. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they also took on the on Japanese the army themselves. <laughs> the Crimean Peninsula, February 1945. The big three leaders of the Allied forces, Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt, are meeting in Yalta to discuss defense and strategy as the war winds to a close. Though some are starting to worry if Roosevelt is more one of Stalin's stooges lately. Yalta, Yalta, Yalta. Why did we agree to come all the way to this miserable, dilapidated place for the conference, Roosevelt? February in Crimea is miserable. There's like only nine toilets for a whole entourage. Oh, Crimea River, Winston. Mm. Stalin refuses to leave the Soviet Union. Besides, this palace was once the vacation home to the Tsar and Tsarina. Karina? Wasn't she a showgirl in Berlin? No, you nitwit. The Tsarina, the former royal family of Russia. I don't care if this was the home of the ballerina. It's a dump. How come the czars don't come here no more? Well, the whole Romanov family was all brutally murdered by the Bolsheviks. Jeepers. And now they invited us here? Frankie, I got a bad feeling about this conference. Ah, don't be a wet rag, Churchill. The Soviets are our allies. As long as they're busy fighting the Nazis, they're not going to bother us. You've been sucking up to that mustache dictator for months. I thought we were buds, Frankie. We are buds, Winnie, but we got to work with Stalin, too. This war is almost over, and if we play nice with him, he can help us fight the Japs, too. Oh, mm. You know, Franklin, you don't look so hot. You pale? You sickly? Uh, who are you calling sickly? Why, I ought to... Hello. All right, you knuckleheads, let's get this roundtable session going. How can we have a roundtable? All the tables here at Lavadia Palace are square. <laughs> All right, Joe. I just got a couple issues we need to cover. First, I want to create an international peace organization. Yeah, yeah. First, we got to talk Poland. Poland? Wise guy, eh? I told you, Frankie, he's using us to expand his imperial ambitions. Shut your trap, biscuit head. I'm calling the shots here. Nyuck, 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 nyuck. Russia must expand. We must extend our neighbors a helping hand. We will extend them two helping hands and help ourselves to our neighbors. What did I tell you, Frankie? This guy's a thug. I'll show you who's a thug. Woo! Well, enough of this horseplay. Let's get down to business. I agree. We need to figure out how to split up the spoils of this war. But now, wait a minute, Joe. This isn't about spoilage. It's about saving the world for democracy. You got your propaganda? I got mine. What propaganda? Propaganda? A propaganda marries a momaganda, and they raise a lot of little goslings. Now, here's a map of what I propose. Ah, you numbskull. You just buried yourself under Stalin's map of Eastern Europe. Ooh, ooh. I almost got smothered by Estonia. I'll smutter you, you. I can't see, I can't see! What's the matter? I got my eyes closed! I'll smutter you, you. Now you need enough. 
Uh, look what you did to the map. You chowdered heads. You've torn Germany right in two. Now there's an ugly gash right in the middle of Berlin. Don't worry. I can fix that right up. <laughs> there. Good as new. New? It's even more mangled than before. It looks like a giant wall down the middle of the city. I'm good with that. Well, gentlemen, how about some caviar and vodka to celebrate? Das Vidanya. I'll take three. Well, I think, you know, I guess my, the conventional wisdom that I've received is that basically Roosevelt pulled Churchill and Stalin and, and made made the whole thing work. That if it wasn't for his ability to kind of keep them talking to each other, then basically there would have been, there wouldn't have been a coordinated allied effort. Germany would have been fighting a war against Britain and Germany would have been fighting a war against the Soviet Union. And there wouldn't have necessarily been like, okay, you do A, well, we do B. Um, and, you know, so kind of the, you know, like the effort to, to launch D-Day when it happened right, was something that Stalin really had been pushing for for quite a long time. I think Churchill would have been fine to continue to let the Eastern Front play out for a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, Roosevelt kind of saying like, okay, no, we need to do this. We need to invade occupied Europe. And this is the time to do it. This is the strategically opportune moment um, that it was really his personality that kind of kept the allies on more or less the same page. See, now you're making it sound like an like a spinoff of Hogan's Heroes, potentially. Like <laughs> Uh, so like Churchill and Stalin had fundamentally different, they both wanted to defeat the Germans, yes, but Churchill wanted to defeat the Germans and protect the British Empire, yep. whereas Stalin just, you know, wanted, you know, to save millions of Russian lives so he could kill them on his own. <laughs> well, and create his own empire, the Soviet yeah. empire, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, even though I think Churchill and Roosevelt were on the same page much of the time and obviously you know we're close interesting how, how i think uh roosevelt was so right about the the grand strategy of it all and i think churchill was so right about the personalities involved yeah um, i think you're probably right about that so what is happening to fdr physically as mm. we get into the whole war and you know, the, 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 the tide has turned and all of that. Well, as you're seeing with President Zelensky, I'll tell you that war is very stressful. And I think it takes a toll on people. So, yes, it took Or a it toll. should, I mean. No, it took a huge toll on him physically. Um, well, no, I mean, yeah. George, H., George W. Bush, arguably it did not, Iraq did not <laughs> seem to take such a physical toll on him. I'm, I'm not sorry. sure how much of that he remembers. <laughs> I think those paintings are actually to like help him. Maybe. Yeah, no, I think his health his health really starts to deteriorate, especially in 1944. Uh, it's clear to most people it's inner circle. And then he has, you know, he has these checkups in 1944 that reveal that he's got congenital heart failure and high blood pressure and series of ailments that are quite serious. Um, and there's a sort of a debate over how to treat him uh, and yeah I think that he travels with a physician from then on there's you know oftentimes sleeping by his bedside um, when they travel because that's how worried they are about him 1944 Roosevelt is in some pretty dismal shape he runs again did he even see any kind of alternative I don't think so but did anybody around him I mean, they clearly saw enough of an alternative to uh, switch out the running mate to Truman. I was going to ask about yeah, that. Yeah. Why Truman? Uh, so I think try? that's where I think that's where Roosevelt's health does come in. Um, so Southern Democrats were adamant that Henry Wallace not be on the ticket, and I think everybody knew that there was a good chance that Roosevelt wouldn't live at the full term for the full four years. So Roosevelt, you know entertain some suggestions that the consensus seemed to be that Truman was the least objectionable. <laughs> and I, I think Roosevelt at that point didn't care. I mean, he cared, but I think he had other things on his mind. Um, and, and as I said, he was also- Was Truman just the guy who was kind of like, because he wasn't any of the other powerful, 
powerful people involved that he was the guy that everybody could agree to because then nobody else got what they wanted or was was Truman the guy because it always seemed to me like he kind of gets plucked from obscurity and 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 put in the you know the the, the heir to the presidency and then you know when a few months later FDR kicks the bucket all of a sudden they you know Truman's like ah what's well, going on yeah, he had made a reputation for himself during the war as an as a sort of overseer of um, investigating various, I think, contracts and kind of and, and things so like people, production inefficiencies. It was kind was of that the, the Truman Commission. It, it really does end up being like the milk toast compromise candidates who always succeed after someone dies. Yeah. Except Truman was a Truman was kind of a savage intra Democratic Party player, which we'll discuss more when we get to Truman because there's some interesting things about him. But I mean, so on that level, he he could. I mean, he's certainly sort of old school enough to put himself in that position. Yeah, and he's he's from Missouri, so it's enough of a Southern state that you know the Southern Democrats. Okay, you know. Most you floated, uh, Margie, towards the end of our depression episode seems appropriate to bring in now because there's that oh that other thing that was kind of being worked on that might be helpful for us towards the end of the war um thanks to our friends at the university of chicago under their bleachers the evolution of the manhattan project which i think a lot of i would not be surprised if a lot of people having done a lot of research on that perhaps roosevelt's fading health perhaps knowledge that Churchill and or Stalin sort of kind of might have about this like uh yeah so I think Roosevelt's his basic approach to the Manhattan Project say in 1943 and 44 was the decision not to bring Stalin into the fold um and okay, that seems smart yeah, well, I guess, but he decided that, um, and Churchill was the one who's sort of. See, but Churchill him. drinks, so I would not want to tell him anything about anything. Uh, <laughs> well, it, wasn't it even though that certain British technologies were key to it, they even kept the British kind of at arm's length. Um, yeah, they participated in the Manhattan yeah. Project, of course, but, I, you know, the other thing about the Manhattan Project is it was very siloed. So there were very few people who understood the project as a whole. Even the scientists didn't have a clear idea of what you know was happening in different parts of the project. Um, especially the apocryphal scene where they're taking bets on how big the initial blast is going to be and somebody says, the state of New Mexico is about to be destroyed. Well, I mean, it was like when they built the Large Hadron Collider. We're pretty sure it's not going to cause a black hole that will destroy the entire Earth, but there's <laughs> always that one chance that we set off the bomb at. at there Alabama. was some speculation that it might have it'll caused a chain reaction entire... that would vaporize the atmosphere. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. that it'll yeah. burn the entire atmosphere and kill us all. Now, here's a little story I'd like to tell about three world leaders you love so well. There's no five-year plan, and no new deal, just win C. FDR and me, Joe Steele. So sauerkraut like Hitler and Albert Speer had beef with my empire and our lukewarm beer. That wanker Chamberlain, giving up land, got the Nazis hot to make the Third Reich expand. One lonely Tory I be, all by myself against Germany. The Luftwaffe dropping bombs on my bowler hat. The rubble's piling high, the city's getting flat. Hoping for a frog, I ran into a yank. He was a Roosevelt, but not Teddy, it was Frank. Mussolini and Hitler were the worst, but he can't join the war because of America first. The Lindbergh was a drag and Wilkie was a drip. Neutrality's reality, there's no way he could flip. I said, yo, I need guns. He said, it can't be done. 1941 is not like World War One. If they change the law, then that'll be that. He grabbed the mic, lit a fire, and had himself a now, chat. Now, my name is FDR. I've got a license to sell. I think you know what time it is. It's time to mark Schnell. There's nothing we should fear, but Hitler's getting near. I run this land, you understand? I made myself clear. We met on neutral ground. He had a scotch. I had a gin. At last, our finest hour was ready to begin.
Now, I've got the bombs, you've got the port. I've got no patience for witty retorts. With some cooperation, we'll win the peace. You can pay me in pounds or we can lend and lease. I said I'll work with you if you can help secure my border. Def Euros after me for blowing his ships out of water. I said on your mark and sank his Bismarck. That's why the nights in London are dark. Though we're on the run, we'll hold off the Hun until you get bombed by Mr. Rising Sun. Then Winston C. will take you on and Pearl Harbor's the place where I'll pass the baton. At war for three years, George and Monty fought. And Douglas MacArthur said the jungle's too hot. A dude kept tripping like a murderous czar. His face, it came equipped with a big handlebar. FDR said, Privyat, what's up, comrade? You got them pinned down in Stalingrad? The dude said, Stay steady and don't you falter. My name is Joe Steele and I will meet you in Yalta. Fought off the Blitzkrieg, headed for the west. He said, Pay me back for Litvos Press. Flags went up as Steele crossed the line. He flattened Berlin and made for the Rhine. I'm Joe Steele and I get respect. Ukraine and Estonia are what I expect. FDR was sickly and he's my ace so I gave away the Baltics without losing too much face. The Wehrmacht dropped. The fighting stopped. De Gaulle had beef but his plans flopped. Jay Steele grabbed Warsaw FDR bit the dust. I stomped my stogie out of sheer disgust. <laughs> Just King, long live our noble King, God save the King. We're about to kill off FDR. Does anyone have any? Uh, <laughs> does anyone have any bombs they want to drop, so to speak? Any more questions? Oh. <laughs> well, well, I I just have. We haven't gotten to do one of these in a while, uh, so I wanted to ask Margie. Uh, I like to ask our our historian guests, who's your least favorite president? My least favorite president. And you can't say Andrew Johnson. Oh well, least it's favorite. Very, it's very easy. Donald Trump. I mean, I, I, yeah. you know, wow. Sorry. You can't, you, can't you can't say Trump. You can't say Trump. You can't say Johnson. Oh, no. You didn't. That was <laughs> like the Why can't you not say Trump or Johnson? All I heard was because Andrew Johnson. Because it's too obvious. I didn't hear anything else. <laughs> 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 so I guess who's your third least favorite president? <laughs> the question he wants to ask? I mean, Trump just leaped on over Buchanan and Johnson. Or Jackson would say Trump, if for no other reason than that we lived through him, so we had to suffer. Well, I was this is, this is true. offended so that's... by the Teapot Dome scandal, so I guess I'll say Harding. Oh, here we go. I'm not. I'm, I mean, so, this is the thing about American presidents. Like, they, they sort of exude There's so many mediocrity. bad ones. No, they just, yeah, exactly. They exude mediocrity. Yeah. It's hard to come up with a good one. Often when they vary from the norm, they vary in horrific ways. So yeah. I think our exceptional presidents aren't like good exceptions. Well, then, let, well, Patrick, why don't you, you, do you want to ask the flip side to that question? Which you've also asked other historic guests to say. Uh, who, who's your favorite president or who's oh, your middleest okay. pre Who's your middleest that. president? <laughs> Again, it's like. If you if you're arranging them, who's twenty three? Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> well, well, it's good. Well, good does run run the Center for New Deal Studies. <laughs> I know, I University. I can't you know, really say anything else. It's good to to rep the team. I mean, you could also. It's also always acceptable to say uh, Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> it is Illinois. Um, he was a nice man. <laughs> oh, you know that might be the spiciest Lincoln take we've ever got. <laughs> he was fine. He was fine. I think, I think he meant well. <laughs> I feel like that's as good an epitaph as we can give any president. Sandy, it looks like you want to ask something. So I think I well, this is you know my question is, and I think we had that with the economics one. Give us something that we don't already know about Roosevelt oh, as one of the top presidents and like one of the number one presidents, you know, give us our read our listeners something that uh, something that they haven't already gotten a hot spicy take. <laughs> something we, something I, we should have. I can't school. think on the spot, but I will say he was very 
he loved poker and he was very good at bluffing. To say as a speech teacher, some, you know, one of the things we haven't mentioned are three of the most famous presidential speeches that he delivered. Nothing to fear but fear itself, day that will live in infamy, and I would throw in the four freedoms. The four freedoms, yeah, exactly. And the economic bill of rights. I mean, mm -hmm. he had a he had a sense that the war could be a vehicle for social reform ultimately, and that you know he had hoped that it would solidify some of his legacy with reference to the New Deal. And again, and it certainly again as we're about to as we get into the next few presidents, they certainly again that it's the template we follow until we get to Reagan, and then Reagan creates a new template. Then there's Eleanor and Paul. Any since you are her champion among us, <laughs> Eleanor being one of the, being one of the most selfless beings who has ever walked the earth, says to Harry Truman. And she was at some women's club delivering a speech when she heard that Franklin had passed. At you know, in the presence of his long term long time mistress Lucy Rutherford, Eleanor does not take a minute to pity herself. She goes to Harry Truman's side. Harry says, is there anything I can do for you? And she, and she puts a hand on his shoulder because, you know, he's about a head shorter than her and says, no, Harry, what can we do for you? For you are the one who is in trouble now. And then Harry says, can you please fire in Henrietta Nesbitt? But she <laughs> <laughs> around. No boiled ham. <laughs> uh, Joe, I, I, of the speeches you mentioned, I did not know the four freedoms. I just looked it up. I, I, do you, do you have any idea when he gave this speech? Uh, 41. It's 41, yeah, yeah. but it's early. It's before Pearl Harbor. I just right. want to take, take a stab. January the 6th, a day that uh, we live uh, in it. Oh yeah, wow. well, it's a state of the union. <laughs> Actually, as Bono said about Helter Skelter, Charles Manson stole this song, we're stealing it back. So I say we steal back January 6th. Celebrate Four oh. Freedoms Day. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Joe, are you saying that we should stop the steal? <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a good note to wrap, <laughs> I think. Dr. Margie Run, first of all, forgive us for goofing on your goofing up on your first name during the first two discussions. Oh, no. <laughs> But uh, but thank you but thank you all and yes we so the, so the rest of our listeners we still have a war to get through and then the American century rah 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 next up Harry Truman DB Comedy presents the Electables this episode sketches were written produced and performed by Gina Bacola Sandy Bykowski Joseph Fedorko Sylvia Mann Paul Moulton Patrick J Riley and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.